Welcome to the Equine Connection Podcast, where health, nutrition, and love for the horse come together. This podcast is brought to you by Tribute Superior Equine Nutrition. I'm Dr. Chris Mortensen. And I'm Dr. Nicole Rambo. Welcome back, Nicole. How is fall, right? Autumn? Almost there. It is. I mean, we were hotter than heck the other day, but then it's supposed to get chillier. Who knows? It's a crazy time of year. (laughs) It is. It is. And I I know a couple weeks ago we talked about fall pastures. So if you have not listened to that one, please do. Everybody needs to to look at their pastures and uh, do a little bit of management. That's the time of year. Yeah. By the way, it was really hot when I did all my mowing. (laughs) (laughs) I remember you talking about that. You're like, I got to go out and mow. It was like, have fun uh, after that podcast. But this one, horses with EPM or equine protozoal myeloencephalitis, I have had one horse uh, when I was a graduate student at Texas A&M uh, come down with EPM. We actually thought it was West Nile because it's a neurological disease. She collapsed, uh, weakness in the hind legs. You, you know, it's so obvious. And we'll talk about some of the clinical signs today. It was so obvious something was wrong, and but like, thankfully we have just such a wonderful vet school there that we were able to get her over there and get her on some supportive care. How common is this? I, I guess, oh, well, maybe we start off because we always like to start off at defining things. What exactly is EPM? Well, I'm, I'm glad you said the long name and we'll just stick to EPM <laughs> yes, from yes, here yes, on yes, out. Yes. It's a mouthful. So it is a neurological disease. It is caused by protozoa, Sarcosystis neurona, which is the final host of that are possums and and they shed it in their feces and then it's consumed by the horse. Uh, You know, estimates of anywhere from 10 to 30% of possums are infected with this. There's also a lot of other intermediate hosts, meaning that the horse doesn't contract it through these intermediate hosts, but just to kind of give give that range, everything from skunks, raccoons, cats, armadillos all carry this as well. And then it goes from that intermediate host to the possum through their feces consumed by the horse. And that's the main protozoa that impacts horses. Neospora husi is a secondary protozoa that can also cause EPM, unknown origin. So the exact life cycle of that we, we don't know today. The majority of cases are that sarcosystis neurona, but some of them are attributed to Neospora husi. It's it's an interesting disease um, because, you know, it was first actually they thought it was toxoplasmosis, but then mm-hmm. we're able to rule that out. And, and there's been a ton of research into EPM. Unfortunately, there's a lot we still don't know. What What makes it really interesting is that because the range where possums live is pretty large and, and expanding, and then just the transfer of feed, you know, throughout, which any of that could potentially be contaminated with possum feces, it only takes a very tiny amount because they shed such crazy high amounts. So you can see EPM in any part of the country or Canada. Um, certainly the range where we see the cement seems to be expanding, but it's highest where there's a large population of possums. So the interesting part is in areas with possums, anywhere from 50 to 90% of horses will show exposure to the disease, meaning that at some point they've consumed feed contaminated with possum feces. 
And again, you probably don't see the possum feces. Mm -hmm. That's what makes it so hard to avoid. It could be out on the pasture and a possum pooped there and a horse nibbles Mm -hmm. on the grass three days later. So a lot of these horses, they'll show antibodies in their blood, but they don't have any clinical signs. About less than 1% of horses who are exposed actually develop clinical symptoms, which is what kind of what makes this disease so confusing because there's a high degree of exposure, but only a small proportion of horses actually experience clinical symptoms can affect horses of any age. You know, there's been some population studies that say it tends to be younger horses, but honestly, I I have worked with people with horses of many, many ages with EPM. So, you know, it it crosses all breeds, it crosses genders, it can be race horses, show horses, pasture horses, it's an indiscriminate disease. The clinical symptoms vary. The example you gave would be a horse who's very significantly impacted. So Mm -hmm. that horse who is, is acutely neurologic, ataxic, meaning they don't really understand where their legs are. They're very weak. It can be that incoordination and weakness often accompanied by rapid muscle atrophy um, in their hind end specifically, but it can affect other areas. Sometimes we see it in their face, um, sometimes in their front legs as well, but it can be as minor as poor performance, like a horse who's just not quite right, has behavioral changes. So it, it can be challenging to diagnose when it's a horse who maybe isn't experiencing what we thought of those really traditional, very intense symptoms. And certainly anytime a horse is acutely neurological, there are a number of different diseases that have to be ruled out that can have similar symptoms. Things like West Nile virus, um, a a wobbler, so a horse who has compression in their neck can be ataxic as well. Uh, So a couple different things could be the cause of that. Uh, But ultimately, in those particular horses' case, it it comes down to infection with this protozoa that moves into their spinal cord and brainstem. And that's how it actually results in those clinical symptoms. Yeah, I I find it. First of all, you had to say the scientific names. So kudos to you. (laughs) The protozoa, you know, uh, but with EPM. Yeah, I mean, this was a herd of about 60 horses and just one of them. You know, we didn't see it before. We didn't see it after. Uh, before I left uh, to head off to, to South Carolina and then Florida uh, when I was at Texas. But it, it, hmm. it it's almost like you're right. It, 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 it's, it's, it's winning the bad lottery uh, with horses with EPM. And that's why there's so much research behind it, because we, we want to understand it more, right? Yeah. And, and your experience is absolutely supported by the literature that, yeah. that occasionally there are hot spots where you have more than one horse, but it's very often a single horse in a barn experiences this. I have one at home myself, um, who, you know, had EPM as well, or had, has, that's, that's an ongoing battle with a lot of them. Uh, but yeah, same management, same feeding regimen, all of that. And you'll have a single horse out of the group and, and there's continued research into understanding why lots of horses are exposed, but only that small amount actually develop clinical symptoms that we just don't know the answer to yet. Yeah, no. And, and, you know, this is why you love your veterinarians because it's they have to do the detective work. And I know we've said this on this podcast. Uh, you know, we're scientists and nutritionists and physiologists. The vets are the ones that, you know, they have to go through and do the detective work. Like I said, neurological disease. Okay, now which one is it? Because the symptoms are very similar. Um, so always talk to them if you suspect any neurological problems with your horse. But briefly, you talked about dealing with EPM on 
with your horses. So what's some of the, the prognosis and supportive care that, that vets do give them? Sure. Starting with prognosis, you know, the literature would say the success rate for treated horses is high. I think one thing that as just a horse owner can be a little bit challenging when you're going through that is that the definition of success is improvement in their neurological symptoms. So for example, with the, you know, the approved medication, a successful treatment is considered a horse who improves one neurological grade. So a horse who has a neurological grade of zero has no neurological deficits and it goes all the way up to a five, which is a horse who is recumbent. They, they don't know where their legs are. They cannot function. And then there's a range in between. So the success rate is often high. Um, so many of these horses will improve a smaller percentage will recover completely. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, we we don't in the literature today really have the definition and there's been a lot of research into this into understanding our horses. You know, they say 10 to 20 of percent of cases may relapse within 2 years or really relapse being did did we eliminate the protozoa the first time? Is it a reinfection? We unfortunately don't know the answer to that, which makes it challenging. So Absolutely. There are horses who are treated and go back on to live a very full, healthy, productive life. There are others that are a technical success, but but they may not return to the level of work or the type of job they were doing before. I have an example of that. So my horse was, you know, acute onset, very significantly impacted. He, he did improve a couple of neurological grades, but unfortunately mm-hmm. did not improve to the point where he can go back to his job. So he has a very important job, which is being a companion horse at my house, but he would be a, a technical success in the sense that he improved, did not return to a full job. Mm-hmm. The other part, you know, anecdotally is that it's really hard because there are some horses who are significantly impacted by EPM, respond amazingly to treatment, go back to life as usual. There are some that are those more minor cases that, that never really get completely right again. So it's something there's a lot of research around and continued research, which I think is awesome. And unfortunately, it's one of those that it's hard to give concrete answers to because there's so much we don't know and such variability in horse response to the different medications. Now getting to the feeding part, because that's what this podcast is is kind of getting to. What's some of the the supportive nutritional care? Because there are things we can do to to help neurological horses, right? Absolutely. And and supportive is the correct terminology here. So just implementing nutritional changes by themselves, right? The horse needs to undergo treatment as appropriate with your veterinarian as well. But in terms of the support, one of the biggest things we focus on is vitamin E supplementation because it it has such an important role in the health of the nervous system. And it's a very potent antioxidant. And there's a lot of oxidative stress, a lot of inflammation going on during active EPM. And in fact, you'll often see these horses when they begin treatment get a little bit worse. And it's during that time as those protozoa are being killed off that we really need to support their nervous system. So depending on the horse and the situation, you know, we'll look at levels of anywhere from 5,000 to 10,000 IUs per day from a very bioavailable source. So in this particular case, when we are supplementing vitamin E, we're going to want a natural source of vitamin E. You know, 
the base research suggests, you know, the horse, average size horse in light to moderate work only needs a thousand IUs of vitamin E per day. And that work was done using synthetic vitamin E, just to kind of put that recommendation into some context of the horse's normal diet. I would say 10,000 IUs per day is the upper limit of that. And we wouldn't necessarily want to just put the horse on that amount forever. <laughs> so it would be appropriate after a couple months to either potentially back down the level of vitamin E and oftentimes we'll maintain these horses higher than we would a horse who's never experienced EPM. So oftentimes that 5,000 tends to be more of a maintenance dose long-term, but there are negative implications to overfeeding vitamin E for long periods of time. So if we think I feel comfortable on a high level, we'd go ahead and do a blood test just to see where the horse is at to make sure we don't over supplement them in the long term and create some issues there. Mm -hmm. The good news is the potential for acute toxicity with vitamin E super duper low. So that's not an issue, but we don't want to over supplement them for long periods of time. Now that tends to be the main focus and that is super important. Absolutely. We can't forget the rest of the horse's diet. You know, we, we've talked in a lot of these podcasts, for example, when we talk about equine metabolic syndrome, minimizing NSC is so important, but that doesn't negate the horse's other nutritional needs. And in the case of the horse with EPM, you know, we want to make sure their base diet is a good base diet in the sense that high quality forage, because oftentimes Horses who have other issues tend to develop gut health issues because they're stressed. So thinking about a gut health friendly diet, lots of forage, lower NSC concentrate, fed at a rate to maintain their body condition. And then the other component of this is we want to generally support the immune system. Okay, because part of what you're relying on is, yes, you, you use an antiprotozoa to kill off protozoa, but you're trying to help the immune system come in and help clear that infestation as well. So thinking about all those micronutrients that help support the immune system, trace minerals and vitamins are very important in that process. And then many of these horses have muscle wasting and they need help building back healthy muscle. So all of that to say combined... I feed a product that's lower NSC at a rate that's appropriate to maintain their body condition. So calm and easy or senior sport would be two examples that I would use quite frequently. And what I like to do is then come in, even though we're feeding at least the minimum recommended rate of those products, which would supply all the nutrients for a healthy horse, because we're in such a level of acute stress, I like to add an extra pound of ration balancer, assuming full-size horse, not a pony, on top of their base diet. So I might be feeding five pounds of senior sport per day, which is appropriate for that horse's caloric needs, meets the minimum recommendation. And then I would come in with one pound of essential K on top of that, which gives us a great boost in all of those micronutrients plus amino acids to help support the rebuilding of muscle. And that, that neurogenic atrophy is, it's a little bit complicated because they lose muscle. It's generally one-sided. It can be very pronounced. And depending on the extent, some of those nerves might die off. So you might not build back all of the muscle. That horse might have permanent asymmetry because of EPM. Mm -hmm. But we certainly want to support the rebuilding of muscle to the extent that is possible based on the horse's health and you know how, how impacted those nerves were during the EPM episode. Now, it's all good advice. One thing... 
that was sticking out to me, and you, you talked about uh, bioavailable vitamin E. So what kind of products... Uh, I know what attributes got natural remedy, but if, if, you know, if, if I'm going out looking at vitamin E supplements, right. To, to add to the diet, what should I specifically look for in those labels? For vitamin E supplementation in this sort of case, or anytime that we have some sort of neuromuscular disorder that we are looking to increase vitamin E, you're going to be looking for a supplement that is a natural vitamin E. And if you're looking at the ingredients specifically, that will be a D-alpha tocopherol acetate. So a DL is a synthetic vitamin E. And I, I just want to be clear, synthetic vitamin E is not bad. It is less bioavailable than your natural vitamin E. It's also a little bit more stable. So there's some advantages there, but the horse does absorb synthetic vitamin E as well. But in a case where we're really looking to boost that vitamin E in a short period of time, especially that D-alpha tocopherol acetate is the preferred form of vitamin E. You can even take it one step further and there are some water soluble versions that's going to be used to really rapidly raise those levels and definitely could be appropriate during that early acute EPM phase. That's something that your vet can help you work through whether or not you really need the water soluble versus just a natural vitamin E source. No, it's, it's, it's all great advice. Great advice. Now, any final tips about dealing with these EPM horses? And I, of course you have one. Of course you do. Right. I have one of all the things. And guys, I only have four horses. I got away with this many examples. Um, sure. So because the incidence of, you know, relapse, remission, whatever it is, we don't understand it, is relatively high. I wouldn't necessarily recommend staying on that super high level of vitamin E long-term without doing blood testing to make sure it's appropriate. But I would recommend keeping that pound of ration balancer on top of your base diet long-term. Again, just doing our best job to support the immune system. Uh, It won't guarantee that you won't have issues, you know, but certainly from a risk management perspective and and doing the best thing we can, you know, that that's an inexpensive way to really make sure that we are giving them all of the possible nutrients to give their immune system the best possible shot of working as appropriately as possible. I know there are 8 million supplements out there, many of them geared towards EPM. um, And, and certainly they, they may or may not be appropriate for your horse, but given the option between, you know, spending my dollars on XYZ supplements or just a really good base diet, you have to start with a really good base diet and then think about anything else as like the cherry on top. So I'd recommend that we we don't ignore just a good base diet in favor of all the other stuff that makes us feel good because it makes us feel like we're doing something and that's totally okay. But Low NSC concentrate, appropriate to your horse's caloric needs, plus a ration balancer is what I would recommend long-term for any of these horses. Solid advice as always. And and (laughs) it's funny, your horses have everything. Uh, But, but, you know, hey, it it helps with the podcast. So uh, thank you you for being our... (laughs) Right, you're welcome. Yeah. (laughs) <laughs> You're the one of experimental. All right. Uh, but for the listeners, you know, thank you for all the five-star reviews on iTunes and Spotify. If you haven't, if you just take a few seconds and do that, we really appreciate it. Really helps our circulation. But also importantly, if you have any topics, any questions, go to tributeequinenutrition.com. 
click the contact us button. Uh, you can put your, your posts or comments there or find us on Instagram, Facebook, LinkedIn. You can also comment there. Uh, but any topics you want us to cover, please put them there. Please send it our way and, and we will get it on the list. But yeah, great podcast today, Nicole. And, and I know we've got some good ones on the way and, and just want to say thank you and thank you to the listeners. Yeah, thanks so much, Chris.